Welcome to Mission Control, where we give you step-by-step instructions on how to take your e-commerce store to levels only a rocket can reach. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in the e-commerce industry that is going to give you simple, actionable advice on how to attract new customers, retain them, and build a brand that you are proud of. This show is brought to you by the makers of Rocket Car, an e-commerce service and solutions company. All right, welcome to our next episode of Mission Control. I am your host, Alex Ivanov, with my partner and co-host, Dave Pancham. Today, all the way from Singapore calling in, we have Josh Chin from Kronos Agency. Super excited to have you on, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so a- absolutely. And, and, and thank you so much. I know it's very early your time and our, uh, late our time. Um, you know, the, the time difference is, is a big thing when you're so far across the world. So thank you so much for making time early in the morning to talk to us, of course. Of course. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. Um, it's, it's a whole thing, the time zone uh, issue. Having it across, having our teammates across 14, I, I believe it's 14 countries now. It's difficult to make things work out especially when you have people from the us asia and the uk that's basically an impossible task you gotta one of us would have to wake up at like 2 a.m which is crazy <laughs> but uh that rarely ever happens um that's kind of the the name of the game it's it's interesting because when i when i speak with friends in the the business space they often think about expansion of business in terms of geography and moving from country to country and tackling different markets one at a time i've never thought about it that way and it comes from and we'll, we'll talk about my my background a little bit but um yeah but i've never thought about us. expansion and geographically which is <laughs> not in the at, at least not in the mindset that i come come with which is really surprising to think about and um, on, on hindsight, I suppose. Well, my background is in, um, I was an ex, ex uh, student. That was how I got started. I was a student in university. <laughs> uh, started in start Kronos back in 2017. And we started things out as kind of a site hustle type of project while I was in school. That kind of got serious over time when we got way too many clients and I could handle myself <laughs> and I had to build a team and I had to build systems around what I was doing and scale that out into a proper business. I had a, at one point in time, I had a decision to make between turning what I was doing into a really profitable side venture, or I could turn it into a career, which hopefully was going to be profitable as well. And I chose to turn what I was doing into a career. And it was really interesting because I never held a job. I've never had a full-time <laughs> job prior to running Kronos. So everything that I've learned have been through trial and error, learning from others, investing a lot of time, energy, and money into questions that we had, and kind of building things from what we believed in and our principles versus what has been done before, if that makes sense. So that gave us a lot less baggage to carry with. And that, that's, a, that's also a big reason why we don't think about expansion in geographies, in countries, in markets, because we have been global and remote since day one. We've hired from all around the world. 
we've been um, working with clients from all around the world, primarily today, primarily in the U.S. About 70% of our clients are based in the U.S. Um, 20% of them are based in the uh, in Australia. And the rest of them are spread out across the world. And I'm based in Singapore. And my teammates are spread out across Asia, the U.K., and Australia and the U.S. So it's really kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what kind of a business Kronos is and where our HQ is. I suppose that would be Asia and Singapore. That's where I'm at. Right. So, yeah. So, so you know, my question on that. So for us, <clears throat> you know, our team is all across the United States. And then we have a, a lot of team members in the Philippines. Um, you know, and I think like for us, a lot of the Philippines and like anybody overseas, like they adapt to our time zone, but still within the U S we're dealing with three time zones. Right. So how, how do you manage your day like that? Because it's very easy where maybe your day should be eight hours, but because you're accommodating for multiple time zones, all of a sudden your day is 11, 15, even more than that. Uh, how, how do you deal with that? I said boundaries. My, my time, my working hours start at typically 6 a.m. or Well, it depends on how early I set my meetings at. So I, I start my day super early. And I end my day pretty typically at around 5. So it's, it's a relatively longer day. But I have the freedom and, uh, and, and choice to break things down in a way where it works for me. So I typically take a break in the middle of the day, take a walk. Uh, go for a workout, come back and get re-energized. There's a block of time in the morning where I am um, highly energized and present. And that kind of wanes over time as I make, make more decisions and have more meetings and do more things. Eventually, that kind of goes down close to zero. Then I need a recharge. So I go out and I, I do whatever I need to do, have a cup of coffee. I'm in a... In, a location where things are really accessible to me without having to travel far away. So I've kind of set up my life in a way where things are very close to me. I don't have a car. And in Singapore, you don't necessarily need a car unless you have a family and all that stuff. So I'm. It, it's very lightweight. Everything is really lightweight with me. No assets, no liabilities. Same with our business as well. So that by extension, that's kind of how I've set up my life. And I like it that way. So I get to move much quicker. Um, the downside is that sometimes I kind of have to react to things that uh, do pop up every now and then. At this stage of our business, things do pop up at like 11 p.m., typically a pre-scheduled. And I have to take a call at 11 p.m. And I kind of throws my schedule off every now and then. But I try my best to kind of set guardrails around things um, so that it doesn't happen again and it's only one off occurrence so yeah so i want to go i want to go just take a quick step back back to i guess the journey um, because we kind of went real quick from you know five years ago starting a business to now becoming what seems like a global superpower so first <laughs> of all how how old are you josh i'm 20 i'm turning 26 this year Okay. So you're my age. I'm 25 as well. So at 21, yeah. you started your business around there. Um, yeah. 
what made you start Chronos Agency? What, like, what, what were you studying at sc- in school? Like, you said you made the decision to go full time into this, and hopefully, it's profitable. And you had to make the decision based on whether you know you want to get a job or you know kind of go take the the regular route, or if you want to take the entrepreneur route. What made you start Chronos Agency, and then how did that grow? It started out as a as a side project. I was drop shipping on eBay, really arbitrage selling. So I was taking things off off discount on places like Walmart.com, Amazon, Home Depot.com, and selling them off full price on eBay. I was making a little bit of money off that arbitrage, and I made my first four figures as a broke university college kid <laughs> it's it was incredible because i've never seen that amount of money coming from not a human being paying me money right so it, it came from it, it was online money my first taste of online money and <laughs> that gave me the sense of accomplishment and i think validation that i needed to move forward in in the industry and I took that money and I started asking around, all right, what should I do with the 2000 bucks that I've saved up? It was just sliding on the 2000, I remembered. And I have um, a bunch of different options. I have Forex trading. I could take that money and <laughs> flip that up to a million bucks. I could um, spend that money into Shopify dropshipping. I could do all kinds of different stuff. And at the end of the day, I realized that one thousand bucks isn't a lot of money. Two thousand bucks isn't a lot of money, and you can't really do much of it. To get the biggest bang for my buck, I had to reinvest that money into myself, into my education. So I bought a bunch of courses. <laughs> um, having seen a bunch of advertising on Facebook and YouTube and all that stuff, YouTube's a great friend, by the way. YouTube has helped me so much um, at the start, especially kind of picking things up and learning about the, the 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 space what my options are and so i bought a bunch of courses came across shopify as an ecosystem i saw that it was booming and this was back in 2017 middle of 2017 and it was kind of at the towards the end of that initial spike of new merchants coming on to shopify and and i saw i saw that happening and in the back of my mind, I knew that with a market that's growing as quickly as Shopify, lots of new entrepreneurs are coming in. I could either be a part of that boat and be a Shopify entrepreneur, or I could be a service provider that helped Shopify brand owners scale and be successful. So that's what I did. And I took more courses and I saved up more money from being a waiter, being a private tutor that paid a lot of money. And I bought, um, I, I remember Ezra's course, Ezra Firestone's uh, email course. And that blew my mind. I saw what he was doing. It was super transparent. I learned a lot from him. And I took that and I implemented it all in my clients' businesses. And it worked like a charm. And that was the beginning of what eventually became Kronos. So, in a in a nutshell, I, I just wanted to make money. I just wanted to make money. And that eventually became 
a challenge and career that I could pursue. That's an awesome story. I love that. I love that you emphasize reinvesting in yourself and for, you know, all the entrepreneurs listening, Josh pointed out a, a lot of very important things there. One, you know, not taking the money and switching like passions or niches and trying to like get rich off of it with like forex trading, right? Like doubling down on what it is that you're passionate about. Two, using free resources like YouTube and then three, using paid resources when the time is right, like buying Ezra Firestone's course. Um, I think all of those things are super important for any entrepreneur getting started or looking to double down on what it is that they're already doing. Um, now, taking it into a deeper level, because you said like you just wanted to be successful, you wanted to be a service provider and make money doing so. To do that, you have to be really good at what you do and you have to make clients really want to work with you for a long time. Fast forward to today, tell us more about Kronos Agency and, and why clients work with you and exactly you know what it is that you do so well that makes clients want to stick around and keep working with you for sure today chronos is a direct consumer growth agency that specializes in life cycle marketing so that's email sms mobile push marketing and the stuff that makes you the profit after traffic is acquired and that, that's very meaningful for clients because now that Profit can then be re reinvested back into growing the business, acquiring more customers, or building operations. And we get to then be a big part of what makes a brand successful. So now the conversation becomes, now that we've made all the, this money with email and SMS and mobile push, what do we do next with our, our clients? And the next thing that we're looking at is CRO, because we're sending a bunch of traffic onto landing pages. And if it's not conversion optimized, it's it's going to be a waste. So that's the next piece that we, we're tackling. And today we have a team of about 90 plus people, um, of which about 10 are contractors and the rest are full-timers spread across um, 10 plus countries. And um, in 2021 alone, we made 90 million for clients um, through email and SMS marketing. So that was super Nin exciting. And 1919 or 90? 90. Wow, nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and this is among how many clients? How many brands? Um, in 2021, we worked with. I believe it's over a hundred brands. There are a couple of projects that were, um, yeah, over a hundred brands, I'd say. Wow. And that spreads out across different industries, different, um, the, the common theme is that, and, and you asked me why, why clients choose to work with us. And it's that these brands are fast scaling and fast growing. And we act as a scalable extension of their brand. That's really important because hiring a team is incredibly difficult. In the e-commerce space, hiring people is often a key roadblock that I, I hear over and over again. And having amazing people on, on your team is going to make or break the success of your, uh, of your business. So we become a scalable extension of specifically a client's marketing departments, which makes it really easy to scale. So... Mm -hmm. That's what we come in 
to do. Most of our clients rely on us to execute, strategize, implement, uh, and document and report on email, SMS, and all the channels that we uh, that we partake in, and that gives us a effectively puts us in the seat of being a partner to our clients, which is really interesting because we being a, an, an email and SMS specialist, it's it's strange that our clients would come to us for recommendations on who they should work with for Facebook, for uh, for Google and all these other channels, but it, it happens. And I think we're really pr in a privileged position to, uh, to be doing that. Why do you think that they, <clears throat> why do you think that that ends up happening? Is it because you, they've just worked with you? Is that just happened to be clients that have worked with you for a long time and maybe they had somebody in house and they're looking to get an agency? Is it like, what do you think is causing that to happen? Why do they have so much trust there? When you when you scale from from say one mil a year to ten mil a year, things break, and if you make that happen in the course of a year, two years, that's even scarier. That's very nerve wracking. Absolutely. And having an agency that you can trust, that who's able to scale with you, as you scale, is incredibly important. Because then you have a reliable partner that you can kind of count on for channels that you know are incredibly important, knowing that you're not leaving any money on the table. Someone's working just as hard as you are for you because incentives are aligned. So that's incredibly valuable. And finding the right fit with an agency who can do that is often a game changer for businesses. And you know what, Josh, going back to what you said a couple of moments ago, you talked about scalable extension of someone's business, of a brand's business. That's so important because when you think about, we've talked about this before, why a brand should hire an agency. I mean, obviously, number one is to hire a company to do a certain service or skill set that you don't have. But two, and most importantly, when you talk about scaling, it's the agency knows how to hire the 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 necessary people at scale to fulfill on those services so that when you continuously grow to be a business owner that is successful of a big business, you have to delegate those things and you're hiring the agency to do that. So number one, you're, you're getting the service expertise, but two, the expertise to hire and scale, uh, you know, the people that you need for those different services. And of course, number three, it's all cost effective uh, at the end of the day. So um, I really like that. That's that's super important to note for any brand owner listening or any entrepreneur listening, really. Exactly. The the cost piece is where people kind of don't don't realize it's not just about the money that you pay immediately, but also the cost that you save and the pain that you get to save from having to build your in-house team. And you can do it concurrently as well. There are, we have uh, a number of clients who have scaled from um, low eight figures a year in revenue to now close to or over nine figures in revenue a year in the course of two, three years, which is incredible growth. And teams scale really quickly over the course of those two to three years. And there are times where people come and go in our clients' departments 
And the only constant is that we've been by their side throughout that journey. So there are clients that leave us because they've scaled so quickly and they've hired enough people to replace the functions that we served. And we gradually kind of scaled back and they realized that, you know what? The risk is way too high to rely on just my in-house team. And there are often gaps that my agency, Kronos, can fill that my team just cannot fill. Um, so right now, what often happens is we have our clients hire us to work with their existing in-house team and scale alongside them and help them make decisions uh, on a on a um, side by side basis. Yeah, that makes yeah, that makes a lot and of it's sense. all about really. Go ahead, Dave. Right. No, it just makes a lot of sense because you you're out there. You know, you dealt with over a hundred different brands last year. Like your insights are going to be so vast because you're pulling from so many different data points out there. Versus an in-house team can have its own experience, but like you're you're constantly getting a lot of real-time data as to what's working and what's not working in the marketplace right now. Absolutely, it's uh, it, it's key, and those insights from different industries and different um, different businesses, it's really important and it saves a lot of time and pain because those split tests and those learnings and conclusions from those tests can be applied immediately to the new clients that we work with. So we get better and better over time and our clients get to benefit from that process. So you said that 70% of your clients are in the U.S., correct? And then 20% Australia, 10% among other countries? Yep, that's right. What are some of those other countries in that 10%? Just curious. We got UK, we have Singapore, uh, Malaysia. Um, we have the Philippines, interestingly. Clients in the Philippines. We have clients based out of... I want to say one of the Western Europe countries, West Europe countries, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where exactly, but it's kind of spread out. We have single points. And I'll tell you why. The, the reason that happens is because we have about, there are 60%, 60% of our clients come from a direct referral of some kind. Mm. Um, that means someone made an email introduction, a phone introduction to us. The rest of that 40%, about 20% of which are just brand new prospects that come as a result of marketing events and stuff. The other 20% are the result of word of mouth marketing. Oh, I heard about you from this person who talked about you and or this partner of yours that talked about you. So... Basically, a non-direct referral. We don't, yeah, indirect referral, and there are tons of tons of these uh, conversations that are happening, and because of that, we don't exactly have a ton of control over who we get to speak to, good and bad, and who we get to work with. If they're a great client, it doesn't matter where they're at, where they're from, as long as they're selling to an English-speaking country. We typically would be able to help them, and just coincidentally, most of our clients sell to the U.S. in some capacity. Most of them exclusively, some of them majority, 
uh, some of them across multiple geographies. So that's kind of the, the way that's set up, that, that we have uh, set things up. The downside is that we don't have a lot of control over scaling growth. So I don't have a knob that I can immediately switch on and say, I'm going to run more ads or I'm going to do more of this and get a lot more clients. So that's a little bit frustrating and one of the things I'm working on this quarter. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a knob that every business wants to have, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the topic of international clients, you know, for any international brands listening that are selling domestically or internationally, or a domestic brand listening that's selling internationally, what have you learned in the past few years about specifically with SMS, but it could apply, of course, to email and website development and stuff like that about compliance, you know, regulations, uh, legislation they have to follow, like a great mm -hmm. one in Europe is, uh, for example, GDPR. GDPR. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned? Like, what is the most actionable thing that brands should know to look up and stay compliant? You're never alone in these situations. You're never alone trying to figure out GDPR or SMS legisla legislation and regulations you would typically be working with, at the very least, a software provider. You wouldn't be building a software from scratch. Sure. Most of the time. For, for that reason, one of the most important decisions that you can be making is which partner would I want to work with? And are they making sure that they're in line with these legislations that, that matter? And by proxy... I'm often make, kind of skipping steps in making this, these decisions myself. So I, I would typically have one round of due diligence with the software partner that I'm working with. And once they pass that kind of due diligence process, that they're compliant, they're making sure that things are compliant for the long run. They have a compliance team and they have members exclusively dedicated to making sure that things are compliant. I'm confident to move forward with uh, a software partner like that. And I wouldn't worry too much about whether I'm stepping out of bounds or not, as long as I'm playing within the bounds of that software, because they're going to make sure that we're not going to go out of bounds within their software. So that makes things really easy. And I don't have to worry too much about uh, making sure that things are within compliance. That makes a lot of sense. So off the top of your head, which ones do you know, like software providers that are pretty much green light, you know, safe to use, and they're also going to provide the necessary guidance to make sure that you are compliant when you use their software, because obviously they want to protect themselves. For sure. With, with SMS specifically, it's, it's going to, it's going to be any of the, the major SMS software providers. Mm -hmm. Um, Clavio is, is one of them. Postscript is a, uh, is a great partner of ours. Uh, attentive. Uh, I know there are a couple of others out there with emotive SMS bum. Definitely do your own due diligence. Check them out. Make sure that they're compliant. But most of the larger uh, software providers would have a compliance team. They would have uh, checks and balances in your account, in your software uh, license to make sure that you don't go out of bounds. Things like with SMS, it's, it's pretty clear cut. Only send text to people who have opted in to receiving texts mm -hmm. and always give them an, an, an option to unsubscribe. 
those are some of the key things and it's already pre-built in to the software that they they make sure that you do that otherwise the risk with not doing so and going out of bounds is that you'll be paying anywhere between 500 bucks to 1500 bucks per text that's sent if someone ends up suing you and that is effectively life ending for a business <laughs> if you think about the scale of sms sends yeah i mean that's we're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars at scale millions millions yes yeah yep even for a small brand even for a small small brand doesn't take a lot say if even if you have a hundred cust a hundred contacts that have never opted in and you wanted to try your luck with an sms and you did a cold sms campaign to a list of say 100 or 1,000 people, that's 500,000 bucks in fines at the very minimum. It's never worth it. So that's a pretty penny. <laughs> pretty have, penny you had, you know. have you had some clients ask you to do it? No, uh, primarily because we are pretty conservative with SMS with our clients mm -hmm. and our recommendations are typically leaning towards the conservative side and our software partners that we work with very closely um send place guardrails to make sure that that doesn't happen as well right so what does conservative look like um in terms of texting like how often would you suggest a brand that you're working with text their opt-in list conservative would be about once or twice every other week so that's that's conservative. I I typically wouldn't go as conservative as that. I, I'd recommend brands couple that up with automations. So new customers would receive anywhere between one to two texts per week, typically, with card abandonment texts, with uh, welcome texts, post-purchase texts, and all that fun stuff. That being said, that's kind of said and done, and people typically know what those are. And you can kind of Google that online. What I'm excited about are conversations with text, because that's where the real power of SMS come come in. With conversations, you get two-way conversations that could drive the needle forward if you're coupling that up with humans on a back end when humans are required. So with platforms like Postscript, Clavio is introducing their two-way feature as well. Um, I believe it's live and all of that coupled with a tool like gorgeous, a help desk or Zendesk, uh, we prefer gorgeous. That's going to help you control the conversations that, that's happening with both prospects, prospective customers and existing customers. And you get to build in lots of additional sequences on the back end with your customer support team that then you can turn into a profit center versus just a cost center, which is incredibly powerful. And that one-on-one -on -one relationship that you, you know, you're typically able to build offline in the retail store where you go to your favorite store and you know your guy, you can now do that online with conversations. So that's what I'm excited about. So can you give us an example? So let's say, you know, a good example in your, your department store shopping for clothes in real world, 
give us an example how that is going to change going forward with technology and societal standards for two-way texting. So at the, at the start, at the start of the interaction, so let's say you're uh, you're selling a bunch of different products, and customers typically come in with an exploration discovery mindset, and they're trying to figure out what's best for them. You have um, say say a supplement store, and you have all kinds of supplements and all, all kinds of health concerns and all kinds of health benefits. If you're in a, say, what's a, what's a popular supplement store in, in the US? GNC? GNC, yeah. GNC, yeah. Right. Uh, when you walk into a GNC, you, you ask um, your, your retail assistant, hey, I'm looking to improve my sleep. Where should I look at? And they're going to point you to the sleep section. And you're going to go, all right, I have uh, supplement A in my cabinet. I'm looking for something else a little bit more stronger. What do you recommend? And they're going to point you out to this supplement and you're going to buy that supplement. And if the retail assistant is doing their job, they're going to be like, hey, by the way, when you wake up in the morning, you might want more energy. This is the best supplement to cut to complement what you just bought and upsell, right? So imagine all of you that. You picked a great example because GNC is so good at that. Exactly. <laughs> you walk into a GNC, they're going to try and sell you for days. You spend three times the amount of money that you expected to. That's training. <laughs> that's training yeah. systems and SOPs, right? Now imagine putting all of that together and automating the first half of that interaction. So going into a, a store, a website, and initiating conversation through SMS or coming in from social media and having someone text a, uh, a, a keyword to a short code, a number, and initiating conversation that way and starting that, that process, right? Hey, what are you looking for? If you're looking for sleep supplements, press one, um, energy supplements, press two, and so on and so forth. This is a bot, by the way, if you need any help, press zero and we'll send a real human being right with you. And that process, kind of the self-serve process can happen, say 50% of the time, and they're gonna find the results that, that they want and they're gonna get to the outcome that they want and make that purchase. And you can build in upsells. Hey, people who bought this supplement also bought these other supplements, you might, you might like, like these. For instances where conversations get rerouted into the help desk, you got to make sure that your people are well-informed and well-prepared. So that's where your SOPs come in, your presets. With Gorgeous, it's pretty easy. You could kind of preset responses for your people and put in place automations that allow for personalization to happen at scale as well. Um, and I won't go too much into detail with, with that stuff. I'm definitely not, a, not an expert in, in Gorgeous. They're a great partner. Uh, definitely check that out. It's G-O-R-G-I-A-S. Amazing tool. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the, 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 the progression of where I think conversational marketing would go to. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's essentially taking a chatbot that you would see on Facebook Messenger, but just... You know, obviously those aren't as prevalent as texting. So um, texting bots and texting flows, you know, advancing the sophistication of those is going to be huge. Exactly. Exactly. 
And it, it's interesting because when you when you look at texting and iMessage outside of the U.S., it's not that big of a thing. U.S. is one of the biggest countries that doesn't use WhatsApp all that much. <laughs> outside of the U.S. and, and UK and Australia and in Asia, we use WhatsApp primarily. That has kind of by default replaced text, which isn't hmm. all that favorable because that's controlled by by Meta by Facebook. Um, so text remains one of the channels where brands truly own. They actually own that channels because we, you own your email list with WhatsApp. You're still kind of being throttled by the software, by the service provider. Um, and you're going through a massive conglomerate, the massive company before yeah. reaching your audience. So it's a kind of a different uh, route. Do people in most international countries, I don't even know, maybe you do, do they, like in Singapore, do they exchange phone numbers or WhatsApp? <laughs> so the phone number is your WhatsApp number, which is which is fantastic. So, But is it like, you, hey, text me or is it like send me a message on WhatsApp? They say WhatsApp me. It's become a verb now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost like Skype me or you know, Slack Skype me. Skype me, yeah. Exactly. So, so, so guys are at the bar picking up girls or saying, hey, I'll WhatsApp you. <laughs> maybe i don't know i've been <laughs> on that scene for a long time yeah maybe, <laughs> instagram I, I mean instagram is still a thing right so right right interesting that's a less less intrusive way of in, interestingly yeah instagram still remains one of the less intrusive ways of staying in touch and getting connected i realized in the well that, that's that's the case for the u.s as well yeah. 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 And for the younger generation, I think Snapchat has taken the reins on in terms of communication. Like you know, speaking of picking up girls, I think like the younger kids now, the guys, like, the, the boys will be like, hey, you know, give me your Snapchat type of thing. Um, Do you think we'll ever come to a point where people go, hey, give me a TikTok? What's your TikTok? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe TikTok is maybe they'll develop, you know, sort of like their own messaging platform, kind of like yeah. Facebook did. I think it'll happen in time for the younger generation, you know. It's likely. Right? I mean, so much activity is going on there. And they want to keep people on. Maybe. Maybe maybe no, messaging so and texting on TikTok might just be a distraction to what what people want, what, what TikTok wants people to do anyways. Just scroll. That's true. They do have hours and hours of viewership. And going into a conversation may take away from that and break from that. Someone sliding into your TikTok DMs, you know? You don't want that kind of thing. <laughs> Possibly. TikTok DMs. <laughs> Going down in the TikTok DMs. <laughs> um, so with the, the texting flows that you're talking about for SMS, primarily in the US, is that technology, is, the, is that software technology available for WhatsApp internationally? There are limitations. Um, I'm I'm not the most educated on what's happening in the in the WhatsApp space, but there are limitations with with WhatsApp automations. Um, you can you you can make that happen with a WhatsApp business account. I haven't seen a really good example of that happening yet. The interesting thing is that outside of the U.S., especially in Southeast Asia. Because WhatsApp is so prominent, 
businesses are often using WhatsApp as a business communication tool. It replaces Slack, right? Which I hate. Yeah, which is insane. Which I so so we don't we don't do that. We have everybody come onto Slack, and if they don't have a Slack workspace, we'll create guest accounts for mm-hmm. our, our clients. Uh, with with WhatsApp because it's so so commonly used by businesses and in in work and in your personal life, it, it becomes just commonplace for WhatsApp messages to be open. Now, open rates, again, just like text, is going to be at like 90 plus percent. It's impossible to leave a WhatsApp message unopened uh, mm-hmm. and un. Yeah, and left left alone. So, yeah. No, I agree. I hate that too. Anytime anybody in business wants to WhatsApp me, I'm kind of just like, can you do something else? Can you email me? Hop on my Slack? You know, do something? Maybe even an Instagram because your your personal number is attached to it, and it's kind of, you know, just you kind of want to separate the two. And that's what shocks me the most about businesses wanting to interact with their customers through WhatsApp because they're, you know. I get that they're asking it for their phone number anyways, but you know, peer to peer, you're asking for your number instead of like a business relationship platform. Hmm. But well, it 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 works, and I, I think it's uh, it's a de- it really depends on if you look at the landscape of of e commerce and consumer behavior as a as a whole, it's largely controlled by three or four major corporations, major companies. You got Facebook, Google, Amazon, and now maybe Apple. That that's it. That's a whole e-commerce landscape. Every tiny shift that these companies make sends waves down our industry in, in e-commerce. And as much as we try to optimize for media buying, ad spend, and all these paid channels and all these channels that we feel where we have control over we are largely controlled by the major shifts are happening externally beyond our control. So that's a, the, the stark reality that, of, of a world that we live in today where every little change can make or break waves and waves of businesses in the, the small, medium-sized uh, sector. Yeah, all the Apple changes, how much has that affected the whole e-commerce industry, you know, from Facebook to email massive q1 was incredibly tough for a lot of our clients and by extension us the the changes that were made have uh plus everything that's happening in the world today kind of all added together and caused a massive impact on businesses that we worked with can you, there, can you talk brands about... sorry yeah, I was just going to say that the, the brands that were profitable before that are now not profitable because of rising freight costs mm-hmm. and manufacturing costs as well as shipping costs and topping that off with a 3x CPM cost. So mm-hmm. not fun, not not the most fun environment to be in. Mm-hmm. What were what are um, I know that last year, email had was iOS fifteen, right? That's right. 
And what else, has have, have there been other developments in email that have, have made it challenging for you know e-commerce brands? Not not entirely, but we're still kind of consolidating and understanding what uh, what, what iOS fifteen means for for e-commerce brands today. And what what I'll say is this: with iOS fifteen, the power has shifted to the consumer, and it means that tracking things on a high level and engagement metrics, especially on a high level, will be really, really hard. There are some workarounds. So Clavio has implemented an alternative attribution model where it automatically excludes Apple opens and clicks. So as proxy, you kind of have a, a, a pseudo understanding of what your true open rates are and mm. what your true engagement metrics are. The one thing that it really affects is open rates. So for people listening who, who are not aware of what's happening with iOS 15, um, Apple users now have the, Apple mail users now have the option to mask their open behavior, which means that emails that they receive are gonna be automatically routed through a proxy, opened, and having all the links kind of cleared up and all the, the little uh, pings happen and then reroute it back to your inbox once you decide to actually open it. So what we see on our dashboard on, on our email software is that open rates for Apple mail users are going to be 100% because all <laughs> of them are going to be opened. So it skews our data significantly. That being said, click rates are still accurate. So that's still a good measure of success. We still have best practices that we can rely upon based on data that we've built over time and learnings that we've built over time. There are alternative methods of in, and, and indications of engagement, including zero, building zero party uh, data and first party data using quizzes. So quizzes has been a great friend. So tools like Octane AI and prehook.com. Those are really great tools to build quizzes and collect first a zero party information from your customers, which means that these are things that your customers tell you. That's what and, zero. I've never heard zero party data before. So is that what it is? Like when they take a survey and they voluntarily give it that way? Correct. So zero party data, that's data that's voluntarily given. First party mm -hmm. data is what's uh, information that's gathered on your website. And that's what that that's the, the behavioral information that you gather from a subscriber's inter or, or visitor interaction with your uh, with your business. So with zero party data, that's that's powerful because you get to build a set of preferences, um, preferences, behaviors, and things you normally wouldn't be able to know about your audience unless you asked. So things like coming back to a supplement example, what age you are, that that's going to give you an idea around uh, the the actual supplements that would make sense for for that age range, what gender you are, what, um, well that that's a tricky one, gender maybe sex right, what sex <laughs> you are, um, what ailments you you uh, you you uh, struggle with, what are your uh, health goals. Those are things that you could build in 
as automations on the back end. Once you have gathered enough information, you could upsell, cross-sell, and build automated promotions and sequences around those preferences and information. So that becomes super powerful. You get to kind of route, uh, kind of go around the whole open rates uh, issue. Because what, what we're doing with open rates and testing for higher open rates is we're testing for which audience segments respond better to which angle and which style of copy, which gives us an, a kind of a pseudo indication on what their preferences are. So if you're able to kind of go directly to the consumer and say, hey, tell me what you want and tell me what your preferences are, you're able to kind of bypass all that, all that nonsense. Yeah. I mean, the best example of this zero party data thing is Facebook's advertising model, right? You know, everybody willingly when signing up for Facebook gives their age, gender, where they work, what they're interested in, you know, all of these different demographics and psychographics that you pretty much don't give any other platform ever. <laughs> yeah. And they built, you know, with that information, the world's most sophisticated, profitable, prosperous advertising system ever in history because they had so much data about the user that they didn't even have to like spy on you for that data. Obviously they do spy on you, <laughs> but just with the, with zero party data that you're willingly giving them, that was enough at, in the yeah. glory days of Facebook to create the world's best advertising system ever. Yeah. I, th I think that's what people don't realize as well. They're, they're not spying on you. They know you already. Yeah. They're, they're not, you're telling them who you are. They're, yeah. They're telling you who you are. And it's, which is, um, yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's probably five to 10 data points of information just from signing up on Facebook of, of what you're giving them for their advertising. Yeah. And I, I read somewhere that Facebook has on average, like tens and tens, like fit close to 50 data points per person, per user on, on, on the platform. Yeah. Is, and in terms of behavioral, what's that Dave? I think it's way higher than that actually. That's probably like a demographic type of thing, but in terms of behavior, they probably collect thousands, right? Like how long did I look at this dog video, right? Or, yeah. you know, how many people do I interact with in the marketing space? Like that's more of like a psychographic thing that they collect. But in terms yeah. of like, yeah, like you said, Josh, like how old you are, you know, where you live, where you, where you work, where do you travel? That's probably, you know, dozens and dozens of data points right there. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Facebook knows more about you than you know about yourself, probably. <laughs> Pretty it's much. true, yeah. It's true. So on the topic of tracking, uh, Josh, you, you know, Cronus Agency talks a lot about increasing revenue and LTV and, and tracking lifetime value. That's what yep. LTV is for anyone listening. Can you walk us through when you're working with a brand or even just getting started with them, how do you track lifetime value of a direct-to-consumer brand customer? Like, how do you actually calculate that? It's, it's easy. If you're on Shopify, way easier. <laughs> you could just pull out the total revenue of your business divided by the total number of customers that you've served. And that gives you the average lifetime value per customer. And your goal is to increase that over time. So that's historical, right? That's the historical LTV. 
And that's going to kind of fluctuate over time. If you use a tool like glue.io, or I believe Triple Whale as well does that, you could mm -hmm. see this happening kind of over time and what that LTV looks like. And you can optimize for your LTV by making decisions in your business, like upsells, extensions of uh, uh, subscriptions, and things of that nature. So that kind of streamlines everything that you do into a single North Star metric, which is really important because now you're effectively growing your return, your total return on ad spend. And obviously I'm not on the paid side of things, but what I understand is that ad costs are rising and it's getting you understand way, correctly. <laughs> way more difficult to acquire a new customer, right? So for, for that reason, I, it, it, it's really important to think about how you're liquidating that ad costs as quickly as you can, but also how you're profiting over the long run with that customer and how long does it take for you to get, get to profitability with a single customer then that gives you the confidence to say, all right, I know that I'm going to get profitable by month two because a typical customer stays with me for six months and they spend uh, 50 bucks on average per session and they purchase three times over the course of six months, right? All of that information is going to give you the confidence to say, this is, my, this is what I'm willing to spend per acquisition this is how aggressive I can get, and this is how I can optimize my front end and acquire traffic in a way that suits my business. So that gives you a lot of clarity and a lot more control over your competitor. The business that wins isn't necessarily the one that has the cheapest CPA, per se, not always. The business that wins is the one that understands their numbers the best because that gives you the power to optimize and make decisions around those numbers. The LTV piece with email specifically, if you're in Klaviyo, which I suspect today, most Shopify brand owners have Klaviyo installed, you could look at predict, predicted and predictive customer lifetime value, which gives you a sense of and what I don't like about that, that feature is that it's a relatively unknown how that's calculated. So it's a black box, but it gives you a good indication over how well you're progressing over time with how much your customers are going to be spending with you over the lifetime of, um, of that customer. So predictive lifetime value uh, takes into account the historical span of the customer plus what they're expected to spend over the next, the, the remainder of their lifetime and for however long that, that lasts. So that gives you a kind of a, a good picture of as a, if, if you have like a set of 10,000 customers, how much more value is there in this set of 10,000 customers? And what can I do to optimize for that additional value? And how do I capture that additional value with tools like email, SMS, and all the own channels that you have? plus retargeting um, through advertising. You know, I wish uh, we, in, the, in the production editing of this episode, what you said about 
uh, the businesses that succeed know their numbers. We should we should drop some fire emojis all over the screen because that was some <laughs> that was some good stuff. So I hope uh, you know, why don't you repeat that, Josh, for everyone listening? The businesses that succeed are not the ones that know that have the cheapest CPA, but but what was it? Yeah. So the businesses that succeed, and again, disclaimer: this doesn't come from me. It's probably a, a combination of stuff that I've heard from different people, but the businesses that win are not the ones that have the lowest CPA, but they are the ones who know their numbers the best because that allows you to make the decisions that you need to make to succeed and optimize for profitability. It's just math. So that's that, yeah, math. That, that's something <laughs> that people don't realize. There are businesses that spend thousands to acquire a single customer, especially in the service space, and they're still profitable. Mm-hmm. So what's a cheap CPA and what's an expensive CPA? That's, it's all relative. And it really, that's not a good question to ask, right? So, yeah. but the return on that CPA is what matters the most. So speaking of spending money, um, you know, whether it's acquiring customers or not, based on your knowledge in the email, SMS, website development space, what is something that people spend money and time and resources on energy, but it's not worth it generally? Interesting question. Very good question. I think it's very easy to get caught up in doing things that your competitors are doing and kind of imitating what your competitors are doing. And if it's working for them, it must work for me, kind of a mindset. Mm -hmm. that's That's a trap. That's a really big trap because you don't know the ins and outs of their business. There are there are contextual um, information that you're definitely missing, and if you're kind of if you're trying to duplicate exactly what someone else is doing in your business, it may work, but and it may not work, but you won't know why, which is the the toughest thing to 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 overcome because you want to be able to make decisions repeatedly over and over again so that you find success repeatedly. There's, there's a, there are decisions that are made that are good in hindsight and there are decisions that are made that are good by virtue of the decision itself. So the outcome could be good, it could be bad. And if you play poker, there's, it, it, you, you get what I mean. The, the outcome doesn't matter as much as the quality of your decisions because that's going to allow you to succeed over the long run. In the short term, there might be variance. You're, you made a good decision, bad variance, bad outcome. Sometimes you make a bad decision, but good variance, good outcome, that's what we call dumb luck. And that's not <laughs> repeatable, right? That's great. We should celebrate. I mean, if, if you, if you, if, if you uh, want some money off the jackpot, great, celebrate, but it's not something you can repeat. And that's not what you want in business, right? So that's how I think about so my, my favorite quote time. of like all time is Pablo Picasso, uh, good artists copy, but great artists steal. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, especially in the marketing world or, you know, creative world, they apply this, which I think is good. But to your point, you have to do it in a way that when you're copying, quote unquote, copying another brand or a competitor, do it in a way that is contextual to yourself and in a measurable way. But also don't just exactly like steal it. You know, if you see a brand 
running an ad or an email, don't steal their exact copy. Don't steal their exact idea. Steal their create creativity behind that idea and steal the mindset and the work ethic that went behind it and then apply that to your business. Because, you know, if you're, if you're stuck stealing everything word for word, right, that doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, exactly. You don't know why, like you said, you don't know why it worked for that brand. You have to know why, it, what works for you. Exactly. Yeah, Alex, you, you got it exactly right. But th- there is a counter example of that as well. So I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here. But the counter <laughs> example is there, there are instances where kind of copying wholesale uh, and, and having copying as a strategy could work as, as, as well. Uh, chances are the things that we're trying to do in business and life are probably not new and they've probably been done before. So it, it's not going to be surprising to come to a point where you're kind of just redoing things that have been done before. Maybe in a better way, maybe in a different way, but they've been done before. So where does the line get drawn? I, I, I watched this uh, really interesting uh, mini documentary kind of a thing on YouTube on this channel called uh, the... I, I forgot. I, I think it's the Stokes twins or this. I, I don't check it out. <laughs> so basically what they've done is they have uh, millions and millions of subscribers. And at the beginning they were, so it's, it's a, they, they're twins, right? The Stokes twins, I, I think they're twins and they're making videos and they weren't getting any, any traction. So, they ended up copying a another creator's video idea, including its thumbnail, the title of the video, and the content of the video. And they just reenacted the, the entire thing in their own way. At the beginning, it was kind of an adaptation sort of thing with a complete duplicate of the thumbnail and the title. What ended up happening is that that video that they made, the copy, ended up outperforming the original by four times. Wow. So not ethical. And it continued <laughs> doing that over and over again. I thought that story was going to go completely the other way. I thought you were going to say it bombed. <laughs> it, it crushed. It crushed. And they've, they've done it many, many times over. And YouTube is not doing anything about it. They don't care. Um, but... Cr- well, creators are, are mad. They're incredibly, incredibly angry. And they've copied pretty much every single large-scale YouTuber that they could possibly copy. They even copied Mr. Beast in one of, uh, one of his <laughs> they, videos. I was about to ask if they could copy him. <laughs> no, that's the thing, right? So Mr. Beast, uh, I, I would have expected him to re- retaliate, sue, or do something about it. What he ended up doing was just spend more and create a moat that's so massive that is so defensible because nobody else can outspend him in his videos. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible mm-hmm. to copy. It is literally impossible to copy his videos now because he spends yeah. millions and millions of dollars every single video. And in order to achieve that scale, you've you've, you've kind of get get to that point where you can do things like that. But at the same time, the lesson there is that now, now Mr. Beast has built such a, a defensible strategy where it is impenetrable. 
because it's based on it, it's based on a, a, a strategy that, that cannot be exploited. It's literally just money. Unless a billionaire comes in and say, says, I'm, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and I'm going to compete with Mr. Beast, against Mr. Beast. I'm going to spend millions of dollars every single video. I'm going to lose a shit ton of money, but I'm going to beat Mr. Beast, which is highly unlikely. He's going to win. So um, I think that's really interesting. Josh, are you what would you say? Player? So, are you a poker player? Yeah. So <laughs> one, one thing you got to know about me is that I'm, I, I have a obsessive personality, and that means when I find interest in anything, right now it's longboarding. Before that, it was tennis <laughs> before that it was and i get i get bored very quickly so mm-hmm. i move from one thing to another and i go really deep into each of these things and poker happened to be one of the things that kind of latched on and have been with me for a long time and i go really deep into the mechanics of poker why it works the strategies that make it successful i i spent a lot of time studying poker uh back in the day <laughs> so yeah you're yeah. just like me man Mm-mm. Last year for me, the past 12 months or so is chess. And I'm starting to think it's going to, for the next 12 months, be golf. Because <laughs> I've been trying to get more into golf. So maybe if I talk to you in a year, I'll be on the, the pro tour. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Just kidding. It's unlikely to happen. Let's see. Yeah, yeah it's not going to happen. <laughs> I think the addictive personality is definitely a, an entrepreneur thing. You know, Yeah, it common, for sure is. Common, at least. Yeah. Definitely the same, the same it's you know, psychological tendencies that get you to start your own business, get you addicted to like a certain hobby for sure. The great yeah, thing I'm, I'm definitely not surprised. Definitely not surprised. I, I think that it takes uh, to, to build something from scratch and persevere through, through it all and not see any results for a bit of quite a bit of time. Uh, it, it's, it's challenging and it's demanding and it, takes motivation that's beyond motivation that you can find off a YouTube video. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, Josh, going back, looking at the past five years, um, what do you wish that you knew when you first started that you know now? How to speak Korean? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, Why Korean? I just came off the top of my mind. Um, (laughs) one thing that I wish I knew, I, I I wish that I should have spent more time defining problems and spending more money finding solutions than, than I did more time defining problems, defining and refining problems, problem statements, and spend more money finding solutions. Yeah. So that essentially failing faster. Yeah, kind of, kind of, but spend money. <laughs> yeah. Failing, failing faster and more expensive. <laughs> Do you feel like you yeah. did not spend enough or you were too slow? Where, where I, I think. I, th- I think we moved it a little bit too slowly and 
Then, then again, on, on the flip side, I, I, I didn't exactly have a ton of experience to, to draw from. And I was doing things as I learned them. And it was kind of building a spaceship while it took off type of a thing. So uh, on, on one hand, I, I, I don't think that I would have been able to do it any other way. On the other hand, knowing what I know now, I think I could spend a lot more uh, money fixing problems and spending a lot more time defining those problems in the first place. If, if I remember correctly, didn't your agency grow really fast in the beginning? We did. We made over one mil in, in revenue in the first year. Wow. Very profitable. Massive lesson. We were incredibly profitable, but incredibly unsustainable uh, because a lot of the workload ended up coming back to, to me and to my co-founder. And we had basically no middle management, no operational team, and it, it was incredibly painful. So we took a lot of that profits, built a, a really sizable operational team. And in the agency space, it's just three things, isn't it? It's acquiring customers, servicing those customers, and, and, and making sure that things don't break with operations. And we broke things because we had no operational foundation. So that's why we kind of spent money building over the past couple of years. Yeah. Wow, well, that's impressive, man. Good for you. I, you know, I know, I know we said this a couple months ago when we last talked, but I really uh, tip my hat off to you and what you've done um, in just a few years. It's, it's really Thank fascinating and, and admirable. I appreciate that. appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of the sure. times I feel like it's not deserved. A lot of times the, and it, this is the kind of, I, I think the mindset of, um, I, I'm not sure if people go through this, but this is something that, that I, I deal with a, a lot, the self-talk, right? And mm -hmm. the self-talk always ends up with, I was just lucky and I'm not sure if I can repeat this. Is this dumb luck like you talked about? Or is this something I can uh, do again? And it's, it's really hard to answer and it's really hard to kind of think about. Um, I guess some people call it imposter syndrome, right? Is yeah, it? I was just gonna mm -hmm. say, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think every entrepreneur suffers from that a little bit. Um, and I think it's important to note that, you know, Mark Cuban, one of my favorite entrepreneurs says all the time, like all the best, the most successful of us are always like a little lucky. Like you, you know I mean? You can't, somewhere along the way, something happened coincidentally in your favor and, and you know, would it have Absolutely. happened otherwise? Nobody knows, but you know, yeah. there's some luck for sure. Yep. Don't deny but the variance. Yeah. But you were putting yourself in the position to fall, get lucky though. Right. You right. can't, right. It's true. Like yeah. Your own luck. It's true. I, I don't deny that. And I, I acknowledge that I've put in a lot of hard work and my team has put in a lot of hard work to make things happen and put us in the position that we are at today. But it, it still is nerve wracking because now here's, here's the conundrum on, on one hand, you kind of want to be, uh, thinking this way and always kind of be on your toes and not settle and not be satisfied. But at the same time, that's going to cause a shit ton of anxiety. If you're not 
present and grateful for what we have today and where we've, we've come from. So I think I'm just trying to find a balance between the two right now. I definitely suffer with the anxiety as well. And it's, uh, it's funny, one thing that resonated with me in your story, what you were saying earlier, was that you took a course by Ezra and you did what he said to do and you're like, and it worked. <laughs> when you said that earlier, I'm like, it's always nice when you take a course and you actually learn something that actually works. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> but then it's so funny. It's like, because if I understand correctly or what was resonating for me, because that happened with me too. It's like I learned something in a program, I implemented it, it worked, and that started the business. And you're like, I wasn't the genius that figured this out. I just copied and pasted it. Like, <laughs> basically. Yep. You know? Well, a lot of the times, yeah. you know, in the service industry, we're not doing anything you know, we're not, we're not creating a new technology or product that we're taking to venture capital in Silicon Valley, right? We're just, we're taking a model that has been proven. Um, we're applying our own, you know, culture and uh, kind of our own funk to it and just building our own thing. And it's, it's a proven model before, from someone before us, and we're just applying it to our clients. So exactly. I think that's going to happen a lot with, and any e-commerce brand listening, same thing, right? If you're starting out, uh, you know, a new, headphone, right? Uh, you're going to copy a lot of the things that you can learn from Apple and Samsung. It's the same idea. Yep. Precisely. And, and you guys are doing it really well. You guys are crushing it. You have over a hundred, hundreds of clients every single month paying you money. Yeah, we're at uh, 150 or so. Crazy. 150. Yeah. <laughs> Think about That's that. Crazy. Think about that, man. <laughs> 150 <laughs> businesses paying you money every single month. And if right, you're I mean, a brand, think about if you're a brand, right? How many customers you have? Like your 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 clients, Josh. I imagine, like you know, generating millions of dollars in revenue per client or per yeah per client. They're they're looking at thousands and thousands of customers every month. That's a success. That's a that's an accomplishment to look at your your customer base and say oh my god look how many people are buying my shit every month <laughs> true yeah so. that's true so uh another question for you josh here on the entrepreneur side um how do you with i know your business being sizable too how do you handle stress how you know i think we're kind of on the topic here a bit of like mindset right like how do you train that other side and how do you manage stress? How do you make sure that you're ideally a high performance entrepreneur? I, I have a, I, I naturally have a really high stress tolerance. Um, but I'm also very aware of how I deal with stress. What's my fight response? And it's typically an escape of some kind. Longboarding. Some kind of an escape. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And that, that's why I, I tend to get obsessed with things outside of work. Um, mm -hmm. And there is, there, there's always going to be new stressors that come by that is going to be challenging based on where I'm at right now in my life and in my business. Looking back at the stressors that I've faced over the years, Obviously, they're insignificant now, and <laughs> it seems like it's stupid for, it seemed like it's, it, it was for nothing, stressing out for nothing, right? But knowing that, it, it's also important to kind of 
keep in mind, at least for, for me, that there are more important things in, in life than what I'm dealing with right now. And I, I guess that partly comes from gratefulness. And Gary Vee is a great, great guy to um, remind us all of that. Um, being grateful for, for where we're at and what we have today and doing something nice for someone else. I, I think that puts us in the position of removing from our self-centeredness and putting our attention towards something else that's worthwhile and someone else that's worthwhile. Um, that, that helps a lot. Um, with the, the, the stresses and the, the issues and the problems that, you, that I, I just cannot avoid, one of the things that's been really helpful for me is surprisingly a supplement called ashwagandha <laughs> oh, yeah? of all things. Yeah. Um, I've recently, I might be placebo, but I, I feel a lot more in control and um, just just a lot more present. But uh, I mean, whatever works, right? Whatever your little ritual could be, mine is just swallowing a bunch of pills in the morning, a bunch of herbs. Um, <laughs> Whatever gets you in the in, in the position to tackle. What kind of herb, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Singapore, so you don't get a lot of variety out here. You got Africa, <laughs> there is, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff. L-theanine, that's not a herb. That's a minor it's a acid. Um, yeah, yeah, a bunch of nootropics. I got, um, oh, lion's mane. Lion's mane mushroom. That works like a charm. Saw a bunch of mm. those in the morning as well. Gotcha. Yeah, no, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of helpful ones out there. So I know we're running at, uh, low on time here. I want to move on to our signature question that we like to use to round out every episode of, with every guest. Let's um, do it. If you could sit in a room with a bunch of mentors once every morning to help guide mm -hmm. you, who would be in that room? They could be alive or dead. Hmm. Mm hmm. That's a good one. Um, I would have um, Ray Dalio would be in that in that room. Ray Dalio's book Principles um, was a was a huge inspiration to the culture that we've built at at Kronos and the, the 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 beliefs and the values that we hold at work today. And I love to pick his mind on the decisions that we're making. And, um, that's a good one. Yeah. I would have a, I would, I would probably spend some time selecting the key executives of my competitors, uh, <laughs> who are way ahead of me, way ahead of me and have them all in, in, in that same room as well. And I'll ask them questions around how they've done what they've done. And the surprising thing is that this is one of the things that, that I, I really truly admire and enjoy about our industry is that people are generally very open and very giving, especially if they're way ahead of you or just a couple of steps ahead of you. Because those that are ahead of you have the mind have have gotten to where they're at by having the mindset of abundance. And knowing that if I help you, it's going to come back to me someday and I'm growing the industry and I'm not shooting, shooting myself in the foot. 
And if you step outside of the internet marketing space and the marketing space in general, and say you go into, um, what, what kind of clients do you work with, Alex? Do we you typically work with, work with? So we work with fitness clients, fitness studios, and e-commerce okay. brands. Now, so in the, do you see a difference between e-commerce brands and how they kind of operate and collaborate across like competitors versus fitness brands and how they kind of collaborate or compete with competitors? their competitors do you see a difference in that that regard oh yeah i mean just from a locality standpoint geographical standpoint you know a, a gym owner is just really looking at who's across the street down the street mm-hmm. <laughs> and how can they how can they beat them whereas an e-commerce brand is all right what other national brands are there in my sector um so that's the first thing the second thing i would say is you know the, the model is completely different. And so an e-commerce brand has to look at everything from, you know, their, their advertising funnel to their website, to their product design, you know, different things like that. A gym, mm-hmm. they're really looking at, they don't care so much about their website as they do their marketing, their sales system when people walk in the door, what right. the experience inside the gym is like in person, physical, you know, it's a lot, everything is so, so different in terms of how you're looking at your competition. I find that, oh, that answers your question. I, I find that in, in the e-commerce sector, people are generally much more open to sharing their trade secrets and how they do what they do. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's really, really helpful for someone who's really new, relatively new in the, uh, the, the business space and the e-commerce space. And being able to collaborate and latch on to the learnings of others and being able to contribute and share my learnings and and understanding to to others have been a big part of how we've been able to grow so quickly. Um, Abundance. I've, I've recently had a right. conversation about asking a. So I, I've had a. I had a. I had a friend um, who reached out on on Facebook. He had a bunch of these questions for me, and I ended up introducing or turning him to a competitor of his, and kind of having him connect with that person. And the the response I got was, I I would. How, how would I be able to collaborate with this, this person? How, how would I be able to have an open discussion? I said, just, just do it. Some of my best ideas and best insights come from direct competitors that I compete with. They share insights with on a very regular basis. And that's been game changing because we know that the, the industry and the pie is so big, so large that no single business can consume the entirety of, of it. So if the if the industry is growing and scaling really quickly, as is with e-commerce, you're typically going to find uh, situations like this. Yeah, totally agree. Like you said, a uh, uh, mindset of abundance, right? This is not Apple versus Samsung where they can't exchange or leak out trade secrets on on their new exactly. phone model, right? Yeah. You know, this is it's completely different, much more segmented. So, precisely. I love that. Love that answer. Um, I love. That's, that's a very interesting answer. Nobody's ever given an answer that I would love to have my competitors' executives in the room with me every morning. That's very interesting. <laughs> Hopefully, they're listening to this. <laughs> um, cool. So, Josh, thank you so much for, for hopping on with us. Like I said, early morning, your time, and just dropping so much fire, so many fire emojis, so much knowledge. Um, the brand owners listening to this are going to have a field day with this information. 
where can they follow you, learn more about Kronos Agency? I'm sure we'll put links in the description, but what's the best place to learn from you and you know work with Kronos if they're interested? Yeah, um, so first place, Twitter. I'm trying to be a little more active on Twitter, so uh, it's <laughs> you, you'll find me. It's Joshua Chin. Um, or you can go to chronos.agency. That's C-H-R-O-N-O-S.agency. Um, no.com, that's it. And Or you can email me at joshua at chronos.agency. That's my actual email. I respond. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Dropping the personal email on the show. Love it. Yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> I love to have good conversations. Um, that's, that's why I do what I do. So reach out. I love sure. It, I'm sure people will. Awesome. Thanks so much, Josh, again. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Cheers.